0: Good morning, Windsor Community Church. How is everybody? Great. Thanks for answering, John. As John said, my name's Chad. This is uh, quite the honor to receive this invitation. Um, I have been a a lover of you guys from afar for a long time. I say that genuinely because, as John said, I, I got to meet a lot of the guys from your body and Pastor Dan in 2018. We started PLI, and we spent almost every Tuesday night for two years, for three hours every Tuesday night together, and so I grew to really love and respect Pastor Dan and some of the guys like Ryan and Tyler and the other ones who were in your body who were in PLI. So I love you guys, and I love our network of churches, and just thanks to John and Jake and Dan for this invitation. Psalm 84 is an amazing psalm, isn't it? You guys just heard it. Maybe that's why I got... I chose this psalm because it's so amazing. And I say, as long as I stay close to the text, I hope it's a good sermon because it's such a good psalm. But that's how God's word is, isn't it? As long as the preacher preaches God's word, the Lord uses it. So as I thought about how to introduce this psalm, I thought about telling you guys my story, a short version of my testimony. And I I struggled with that. I've decided that's what I'm going to do, but I'm an open book. You're going to see that when I preach, so I'm going to tell you why I struggled with it. I didn't want to come off as the guest preacher, the the youngish man that you can see, um, who wants to come up and talk about himself the whole time instead of preach the Word of God. I, I promise I love this way more than I love telling my own story or talking about myself. But part of the purpose of this is for you guys to get to know me a little bit. I know I prefer when I have a guest preacher to get to know him just even a little bit. And then the other struggle I have is when I tell my story, I'm afraid of coming off as, as not just a guy who likes to talk about himself, but an arrogant guy who likes to talk about himself. The Lord blessed me with some pretty good success in the sport of track and field. And you're going to hear about that. And I've, I've wrestled with, should I tell like, all these details because I don't want to sound arrogant? I want you guys to hear this. I count knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior as far more great of value than having some track and field success in my former life. I count it as rubbish. May God use my story for his glory and your story for his glory. And it's okay to tell the truth about some of the ways that God has blessed us. So I hope you hear that. And I'm going to do my best to to keep it short. If you want to hear a detailed version, let's go get coffee. You can tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. So I grew up uh, right here in northern Colorado in a Christian home. My parents are Christians. We went to church every Sunday. We went to a life group. We called it house church when I was a kid every Wednesday night. And I thought I was a Christian, like most Christian kids, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I thought I was a Christian because mom and dad were Christians. The reality was I wasn't a Christian until I was 26 years old, which was in 2013. I had a good childhood, great parents, I have an older brother, but I had a sad childhood too. The, the reality is, in starting in about second and third grade, which is obviously really young, I started believing I was stupid, really stupid. And so I started struggling in school really hard, and you're in school from... 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. every day for most of the year, so I'm just struggling believing I'm stupid. And in middle school, I had appropriated this lie so much that I believed I was worthless. I was so stupid that I was worthless. I should just kill myself. And that thought went through my mind many times from middle school, even through college. God's grace. I don't struggle with suicidal thoughts anymore, but to be honest with you guys, I still sometimes struggle believing I'm stupid. The enemy throws that at me a lot of times right before I'm about to stand up here and preach a sermon to God's people. Luckily, my strength is in God, and we're going to get to that later this morning. But in eighth grade, my arm basically was twisted to go out for the sport of track and field. The, The track coach saw me running around on the basketball court, and he said, please come run track. We'll do anything to have you. I was like, okay, fine. So I go out for the team, and I was a sprinter, not a long-distance runner, and I won every race they put me in, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, the 400 meters, and I showed special promise in the 400 meters, which for those of you who don't know track, that's one lap around the track. And from that moment on, (coughs) I wanted to be an Olympic gold medalist and a professional track and field athlete. Obviously, like any athlete, especially one who struggles believing they're stupid and worthless, when you finally find something you're good at, that's where your worth Your worth and your value going that's what gave me passion and that's what I sought satisfaction in was the sport of track and field and if we're gonna get it below that I was worshiping myself through my performance in track and field so I'll fast forward I go through high school my senior year of high school comes around and I'm wrestling with does my hatred of school and my belief that I'm stupid and worthless outweigh my love for track should I go run track in college I'm not sure Well, my senior year at the state championship in the 400 meters, I got second place, by the way, I didn't say that last night. I got second to a really good guy, but I ran the ninth fastest time in the United States of America that year for high school. So then colleges are calling me left and right, I'm getting letters in the mail, please come run track for us. And I tell my summer track coach, I just want to go to CSU. That's where my girlfriend's going, I'm just from Fort Collins, and they're like, Chad, come on, you could go anywhere you want, pick somewhere. Like... And so my coach made me go visit Oregon, University of Oregon. They offered me a scholarship. I loved it there, and I went. So I think, okay, I'm on my way. Olympic gold medals are coming my way. The, the professional track and field career is coming. But I fast forward for you guys. Uh, college was a bunch of me seeking satisfaction in my performance in track and field. And as you can guess, if I run good, I'm the man. If I run bad, I suck. I'm the worst. I hate life. I graduate college. I don't go pro. I'll never forget the plane ride home from Texas back to Oregon, crying the whole way because I knew it was my last track meet of my life. And on that plane ride, I knew my purpose is gone, my passion is gone, my worth is gone, my value is gone. All I have left is being stupid and worthless should I kill myself. I moved back to Colorado. I call this season of my life the Great Depression. I was in Grand Junction. And uh, I'm thankful for this season, looking back on it, because it's when the Lord drew me to himself. So another long story, shortened. I'm so depressed, I'm so hurting, that I realize I've always claimed to be a Christian, but actually I don't think I am. I want to read the Bible from beginning to end. God blessed me, I think, with good theology, even being an unbeliever. I said, if God's real, he'll reveal himself to me in his word. So I just want to read from Genesis to Revelation. And then I start going to church and I had like I said I had gone to church my whole childhood I went a few times in college because I was supposed to, right? Like that's what you do, you got to check off the box, you got to ask for forgiveness for your sins but keep living however you want. And but this is me going to church cuz I'm in such pain, you guys. I was hurting so bad. And so one Sunday the pastor starts his sermon by talking about the difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower of Jesus, being a real Christian and a fake Christian. And I'm sitting there in the pews crying my eyes out, because I realized for the first 26 years of my life, I've been a fan of Jesus. I've been a fake Christian. I've given him lip service, but a change hadn't happened in my heart. And in that moment, he said, Lord, I need you to forgive my sins. And in that moment, he did. And the pastor said nothing about worship or satisfaction or identity, but it was amazing what I came to believe in that moment. He said, God, I exist to worship you. That is what I'm passionate about. That is my purpose in life. That is where I find my value and my worth, is being a son of God. And my life has never been the same since. It was a radical change. And I want God more than I want any gold medal. Even watching the Olympics these last few weeks, I say, I'd rather be right here with you guys than coming home from the Olympics. I don't want a $16 million check from Nike. I want to worship God, and that's who I am. And I start this sermon that way because Psalm 84 is a prayer and a praise of one who can say that. Every Christian can sing Psalm 84 from the depths of their hearts. Every one of us seeks happiness and satisfaction in something. God did not make us to, de- to be depressed. None of us aspires to depression, right? We want to be happy. God made us to be happy in Him. It can only be found in God. Psalm 84 was written by the sons of Korah. These guys were appointed in 1 Chronicles 26 to be the gatekeepers of the temple. One commentator says they may have even been the janitors of the temple. At least they were gatekeepers. At most, they were gatekeepers and janitors. This psalm can be split. I've split it up into four parts for this morning. We will see passion, pilgrimage, prayer, and praise. Here's what I want you guys to hear this morning. Since God is the supreme satisfaction of the human soul, desiring and delighting in him should be both the motivation and the goal of our lives. And we see this in the psalm. The psalmist is convinced that only God will truly satisfy him. So he overflows in passion. He considers a pilgrimage and he's stirred to prayer and to praise. So be Before we turn our attention to the word of God, let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are great, and you're greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, I am humbled at what you've done for each of us, each of us in here who are in Christ. As Dan said a few weeks ago from Psalm 1, Lord, we declare that you have replanted us next to streams of living water. And so our hearts can cry out for you like the psalmist in Psalm 84. Lord, I pray that you'd speak through me this morning. Keep me true and faithful to your word and get me out of the way, Lord. Let us see you through your word and speak to us through your word. Even me, Lord, I preach to myself this morning. For those in our midst, Lord, who don't know you, I pray for them. I pray that you would help them see the thing that they're trying to be satisfied in won't satisfy. It's a broken cistern. Lord, and only you satisfy, you are the fountain of living water, you are the bread of life. We love you and praise you. pray this in the name of Jesus, satisfaction, amen. So let's look at the psalmist's passion in verses 1 through 4. He starts, verse 1, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Lovely could be translated, beloved. It has a warm place in his heart. Think of what the Father said about the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Beloved means this this deep desire and longing and warmth and love. Why does the psalmist say it's lovely? Because of its great decor? Because the temple was aesthetically pleasing and beautiful? Maybe, but primarily he says because it's your dwelling place. God's. The Lord of hosts. This phrase, Lord of hosts, means Lord of angel armies. Commander of the armies of heaven. The creator and sustainer of everything in existence. As John prayed at the beginning, there's no maverick molecule. He's in control of everything. This is the Lord of hosts that the psalmist wants to be with so bad. He's longing for the courts of the Lord. Hear his passion. He's fainting. He's singing for joy. It's, it's like he's thinking, if I don't get you soon, Lord, I'm going to faint in the same way we would if we don't get water or food for many days. And at the thought of getting him, and when he does get him, he will sing for joy to the living God with all of his heart and all of his flesh, all of his being. You, you see his passion. Lord, I want you so Bad. I can't wait to get you if I don't get you I'm gonna pass out and when I do I'm gonna sing for joy Charles Spurgeon says this about verse 2 Some people need to be whipped to church While here is the psalmist crying for it He needed no clatter of bells from the bell tower to bring him in he carried his bell in his own bosom Holy appetite is a better call to worship in a full chime. Windsor Community Church, are you this passionate about being with God? Alone with God in your devotional times and with the congregation? Or does it take you being whipped to come here? Or do you come like I did for the first 26 years for some reason because you feel like you're supposed to? you got to check off a box. Or do you long to spend time with the Lord passionately? Is your heart and flesh crying out for joy to be with him? Next, he considers the birds. His passion overflows to them. Look at verses 3 and 4. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Here the psalmist turns his attention to the birds and even those that dwell in the Lord's house. Maybe he's considering himself as a son of Korah who's a gatekeeper. Maybe he didn't find his home in the temple, but right near it, if he's the gatekeeper and the janitor. But first, consider the birds. It says sparrows. Even the sparrows find a home. One commentator, I thought this was a really cool insight, One commentator thinks that sparrows may be a symbol in the Bible for something that's worthless or insignificant. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said God cares for the birds. But then even more specifically, Jesus says in Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Verse 31, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God cares for the worthless and the insignificant. He gives a home to the birds. He cares for you and for me. Like the psalmist, we can say about the God who cares for the birds, my king and my God. You see that at the end of verse 3. This is one of my wife and I's favorite realities and truths of the Bible. My wife likes it so much, she bought a Bible with birds on the cover. And it's pretty old and worn out, so this past Mother's Day when I got her a new one, the only requirement was that it had a bird on the cover. We love this truth. We look at birds all the time and we just go about our day. I encourage you guys, you go out today and look at the birds. God cares for them. How much more does he care for you? And then in verse 4, he says, those that dwell in God's house are happy, ever singing your praise. They are able to continually praise God. Here's how this applies to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. There's no more temple. We don't need to go to a temple to worship anymore. Jesus says to the woman at the well, who, by the way, what is she doing? She's seeking satisfaction in all these things apart from God, namely in relationships with men. And Jesus calls her on it. That's not going to satisfy you. I'm going to satisfy you. I will give you living water. But what does he say to her? The Father's seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. No longer will you worship, you the Jews worship in Jerusalem, Samaritans worship in Samaria. We'll worship everywhere. When God replanted me and you by streams of living water, when we believed the gospel, we became a temple of the living God. Now we are the place where heaven and earth meet. And we can continually praise him. It's amazing. We can continually praise him. Do you know how to praise God when you brush your teeth? I don't really either, but I'm, I'm growing in it. Do you know how to praise God in between every moment at work as you're disciplining your kids? You can do it. May God give us the grace to learn that we can every moment of our lives can be praised in everything we do. But I'm not trying to negate the the. Blessed reality of this gathering. There's something special when we gather as God's people. This church building is a great gift from God that we can come and worship together, sing together, hear the word of God preached, enjoy it, obey it. It's amazing that all of life can be a reality and an aspect of worship to the living God. And this should stir passion like the psalmist. So I titled that section Passion But to be honest, it's not as if his passion stops in verse 4. It continues through the whole psalm. But in verses 5 through 7, the psalmist considers the joys of pilgrimage that the Jews would take in the yearly feasts to the temple, seeking delight and satisfaction in God. So let's look at the pilgrimage together, verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, he says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Happy are those whose strength is in God. A Christian is one who knows they cannot make it through life without God's strength. I'm kind of a young man, 34 years old, and even I've experienced this. I've experienced valleys, I've experienced death, I've experienced depression. And I know I can't make it through this life without the strength of God, and I don't know how anyone does. Christian is one who knows this and loves it. And the reality is, even when we're weak, we're strong. One of the most famous New Testament passages on this is 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. Paul is praying that God would remove a thorn in his flesh that's making him feel weak all the time. He's struggling. And Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And those whose strength is in God have highways in their hearts that lead to Zion. Love that verse. Zion just means, based on the context, sometimes it can mean Jerusalem or the temple. Mostly it means the place where God dwells, the center of God's nation, where His presence is. And through the Holy Spirit, our hearts are paths that lead to God. Our hearts are highways to Zion, personally and congregationally. First, personally, isn't that a great compliment? Wouldn't it be amazing to receive a compliment like that? Man, John, you are just a man whose heart is a highway to Zion. seems like every time I'm around you, you're like closer and closer to this God that you love. Don't you want people to say that about you? Don't you want people to say that you are a Godward, God-centered, God-loving person, always headed towards God? And then congregationally, your guys' mission is leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And you're passionate that people would come to know him as Lord and Savior and grow together in your knowledge and love for him and go tell people about this great God, this supreme satisfaction, and to please join you on this highway to the city of God. I love your mission statement and your passions. That is the way that you guys are saying we want to be together a people whose hearts are headed to the presence of God. Windsor Community Church. If you guys want to continue to see God transform your hearts and your community, keep devoting your lives to this, and your hearts will continue to be highways to the presence of the Lord. If you ever wonder why this church dies, if it dies someday, it's, it's going to be because you lost sight of this. You stop devoting your lives to leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. My prayer for you guys is that that mission statement and these passions wouldn't just be the mission statement and passions of this church in general or of the pastors specifically, but every individual in this church. Keep it up. The reality, though, is as we're on this highway, as we're on this pilgrimage, it's not always going to be easy. Look at verse 6. As they go through the Valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Valley of Baca could be translated Valley of Weeping. Is it a literal place? Some commentators and archaeologists believe so. It's a dry and arid valley with balsam trees that one had to travel through on the way to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, maybe that's, that's right. I would say, though, more likely it's used symbolically to illustrate the difficult and sorrowful path we travel in this life. Some of you may be in a valley of baca right now. I know I've been there, a valley of weeping. But look back at the verse. It says, as they go through the valley of baca." Now, God may ordain that some of us have more suffering than others. We may have health problems that last our whole lifetime. It may feel like much of our life is a valley of weeping but we will be taken through it. And not just through it. The Lord will bring blessing and comfort and sanctification in and through that season. That's what it means when it says they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. It reminds me of the great truth, Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God works everything for our good. Even the valleys of weeping. And because of this truth. The psalmist can say in verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. When we're strong. We're strong. And when we're weak. We're strong. And because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will appear before God in Zion. And we can know because of what Christ did on our behalf, we will not receive wrath. Appearing before God will be a fearful thing for all of us, those in Christ and those not in Christ. It's amazing. You think that tropical storm you saw in Florida when you were six was amazing? You think the lions at the Houston Zoo are amazing, and they are Wait till you stand before God in his presence. And for those in Christ, we will not have fear. It will be a fearful thing, but we will not have fear. Because we're in Christ, and we won't receive wrath, but love, grace, and acceptance. And, and we'll hear the thing that each of our hearts so desperately wants to hear, even if we don't know. We're going to hear from the God of the universe. Because of what Christ has done for us, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. He's going to give us himself, give us delight and joy and supreme satisfaction, even more than we've experienced in this life through him. We are sojourners and pilgrims. We're not traveling to a temple a few times a year to worship God. We get to worship him continually, but the reality is we are traveling to God. We're longing for the heavenly city whose builder and designer is God, and God will preserve us to this city and use every valley for our good and for his glory. Here's a specific application question for you guys. It's even for me. Coincidentally, the last time I preached for the Crossing Church from Psalm 6, this came up as well. So I think God's trying to speak to me just as much as you guys. Why do we ask so quickly to be removed from our trials? I'll be the first to admit it. I'm an otter personality type. If you know the animal personality type quizzes, if you don't, I'm like Tigger from Winnie the Pooh. This happy guy, the PLI guys one time, one night at PLI, called me a golden retriever. They're like, Chad, you're just like always chasing a ball. You're always so happy. Good compliment. But it's hard because when I'm in a a trial, a valley, a valley of weeping, my first thing is, Lord, get me out. I want out. This isn't fun. And I want to have fun. Rather than asking God to strengthen me, comfort me, teach me, purify me. I encourage you guys to consider that next time you're in a trial. Don't, it's okay to ask God to get out. We see that all over the Psalms. But first, God, give me grace. Strengthen me, comfort me, purify me, Lord. So much of our trials are to get our hands off the things of the world and back onto Him. It's gracious of Him to do that for us, and it glorifies Himself. So when God replants a person, gives them a superior satisfaction in himself, passion overflows in their hearts. A pilgrimage is begun, and on that journey, we can't help but pray and praise. So let's look at prayer in verses 8 and 9. This is a short section, only two two verses, shortest part of the sermon. Verse 8, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. Maybe the psalmist is still in the valley of weeping, maybe not, maybe he's looking back on it in hindsight. Either way, he begs that the all-powerful, covenant-keeping God would hear him, hear me, give ear, and then be a shield, protect, Lord, protect me. As we consider the psalm as a whole, and that this whole psalm could be considered a prayer like every psalm, an important truth to acknowledge is the purpose of prayer and the purpose of this psalm, namely God himself. Prayer is more about intimacy with God than asking him to give us relief or good gifts, which aren't bad things, but prayer is mostly about just being with God. Communing with the one who knows and sees and hears at all times. Prayer on the pilgrimage preserves and perseveres the worshiper's delight in God. So I ask you guys, does your love for God and your desire for God show in your pursuit of intimacy with him in prayer? Are you a person of prayer? Probably that convicts all of us, including the preacher. God will give us grace to grow in that, to seek to commune with him and delight in him in our prayer lives. How about your praise? Pursuing God as supreme satisfaction causes the psalmist to overflow in praise in verses 10 through 12. Look at the beginning of verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Let me read that again. For a day in your courts, is better than a thousand elsewhere. What a verse. Do you believe that verse? Do I believe it, really? And if we do, do we live it? Do you live that verse? God is the supreme satisfaction of our soul, and one moment with him is better than a lifetime anywhere else. Second half of that verse, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think he could mean two things here. He's just continuing to say, I want God. I'd rather be on the threshold of the presence of God than outside anywhere else. But he's probably also referring to his role in the kingdom. This is a son of Korah who is probably a doorkeeper. There is no small role in the kingdom of God. And if there is a small role in the kingdom of God is better than a sovereign in the world. Wouldn't you rather have a small role and be in the presence in the kingdom of God than have a huge role anywhere else? Windsor Community Church, even before I knew what your announcements were going to be this morning, I was going to call you guys to serve the church. And then I saw John's up here saying, "We need help in the children's ministry." Wouldn't you rather serve in the children's ministry than be a sovereign out there? with your gold medals and your millions of dollars from Nike. Serving the kids is not glorified babysitting, it's discipleship. You can tell these little kids, I have a two-year-old, she can get that God loves her. I can tell her, do you know how much God loves you? And I can show her that by the way I treat her. You serve the kids of this church, you disciple them when you serve, and you serve the families in here who get to put their kids back there so they can pay attention to what God is trying to tell them through His Word. There are other ways than just children's ministry. Find a way to serve this church. I hope you guys are all in a community group, serving your community group, using your gifts to love people, to show them the love of God and to be served by them. That is God's design for His church. And it's better than anywhere else in the world. The psalmist longs for God, God Himself, but he can't help in verse 11 to describe some attributes of God. He says, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. Sun and shield, I believe, mean that God is life. He's light. He guides us. And He gives protection. He bestows favor and honor. Certainly they could understand this in the Old Testament, but how much more can we in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does it mean that God bestows favor and honor? He sends His Son into the world. To live a perfect life. To die a death on the cross that we deserved and God's wrath poured on him on the cross. He died but three days later rose again. Ascended to the Father and now has sent the Holy Spirit. To replant people next to streams of living water and to adopt them as children of the great King. That is favor and honor. Why do we, so, so many of us, even me, struggle with trying to get favor and honor from the world when we have it from the God of the universe? And this great God, second half of verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Obviously, this means that God is going to give us Lamborghinis and mansions and all the health and wealth that we want, Right? I could do a 10-part series on the prosperity gospel and how bad it is for us, but we're in the Crossway Network, so you probably don't need me to do that because you know it. This verse means that God will give us everything we need to persevere in the pilgrimage. There is so much in this life we think we need that we don't actually need. It reminds me of Romans 8:32. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. It's my life verse. If I ever got a neck tattoo, it would be Romans 8:32. I'm not going to do that, don't worry, but if I did. Romans 8:32 says this: God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave us his son Jesus Christ, He's going to give us everything else we need to make it to him, to his presence, to the city of Zion. We don't need the Lamborghinis. We don't need some of the other good things that I'll get to in a little bit. He's going to give us what we need to make it to him. And a lot of times, to get our hands off the things of the world, he will bring trials. He will bring suffering to make us realize, oh, what am I holding? Lord, get me back onto you. He ends with verse 12, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Happy are those that trust in God through the valleys of weeping and over the mountains of joy. So I end with some questions for you guys. I hope you will truly and deeply consider them. Do you believe, do you really believe that only God can truly satisfy the longings of your soul? Do you need to repent of an idolatrous desire that has been placed above God? See, the reality is when God replants us by streams of living water, when we first believe the gospel, it's not as if we're never going to struggle finding our satisfaction in other things besides God. John Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. And even when we're Christians, we, we, our hearts still can produce these idols that we seek satisfaction in. Let me get personal again. I moved back here in 2014 after God had called me to ministry. My wife and I moved here from Grand Junction, and we lived with my parents. And we said, we're going to live with my parents for six months to a year, and then we're going to buy our own place. It doesn't have to be a house. It could be a condo. It could be an apartment. At this point, it could be a cardboard box that's big enough for the five of us. We're almost eight years later. I still live with my mommy and daddy. I'm 34 years old, married, three kids. Let me tell you how almost daily I have to remind myself of my identity in Christ and my satisfaction in God. My wife doesn't regret marrying me. She doesn't wish she married an engineer that could have provided her a home. And when I end the day struggling and depressed that I don't have a home, it's because I've sought supreme satisfaction in something that can't satisfy I'm the intern at the crossing, and it's the best job I've ever had. But before that, I was framing houses, and I've been longing, God, please provide a vocational ministry position for me. I want to love you by serving the church vocationally. I want to I be here all day, every day. But even God in the last year, you guys, has ripped my hands off that. I am a worshiper of God, and I'm satisfied in God. And if he provides a vocational, pastoral ministry position Bless his name, and if not, bless his name. I don't know what you guys are longing for. Most of you probably aren't hoping for a Lamborghini or a huge mansion. You're probably longing for for good things. Some of you in here might be wishing you could have a kid. Some of you, like me, may be young, and you're longing for a house. You're longing for a promotion in your job. Those aren't bad things. They're just not good gods, and they're not going to satisfy your heart. Only God can satisfy For those of you in here, if you're not a Christian, I call you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That is the first step to finding God as your supreme satisfaction. I'm not offering you fire insurance. I'm not telling you you have to believe in this so you don't go to hell for eternity, which is true, I believe. But it's so much more than that. I don't want you to run away from a hot place. I want you to run to a good God who will satisfy you. I promise. I've tried everything. I had the athletic su- success. I, I slept around my whole life in high school and college. Sorry if that's too much information, just being honest. I partied. I've tried everything to fill the hole in my heart, and it didn't do it. And if you're here and you don't believe in God, I, I just ask you to think, are you happy? Are the things that you're pursuing satisfying you? I think if you're honest, you'd say no. St. Augustine said, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. Are you seeking God as your supreme satisfaction? Are you longing and fainting for him, trusting in and finding strength in him, excited to be alone with God in the word and prayer and amidst this congregation? Are you helping others grow in this? This kind of delight and passion cannot stay private, and the culture has won a big war against us in this. It's okay to be a Christian, just keep it to yourself. Windsor Community Church, do not keep it to yourself. We cannot deny this of God. C.S. Lewis goes really into this. We 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 praise the mountainside, we praise poems, we praise the, the the latest new Avengers movie. We praise the new sushi restaurant and the pizza restaurant. We're telling everyone. We praise our spouses. You're so handsome. You're so beautiful. And we be quiet about God, the supreme satisfaction of the world. Be bold with me. I haven't, I'm not there yet. This is for me too. Risk the awkward conversation with your friend who doesn't know the Lord. This passion and this delight cannot stay inside of us. But remember, I want to give you guys a gospel motivation to live this psalm out. My fear is that I've given you a law. If you're not satisfied in God, then you're not saved. And your performance in your satisfaction dictates your salvation. I hope you didn't hear that. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he has purchased for every one of us on the cross the ability to see and pursue God as our supreme satisfaction. He will see us through, and by his grace, we will grow through this life in learning how to be supremely satisfied in God. May God bless us as we pursue him. Let's pray. Lord, we are humbled in worship at the realities of who you are and the way you satisfy our hearts. What an argument for your existence, Lord. As C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves longings that the world can't satisfy, it must mean that we are made for another world. We're made for you, God, to delight in you, to be satisfied in you. Lord, I pray your blessing over Windsor Community Church, that by your grace you would continue to enable them to pursue you. Supreme satisfaction. Use this church body and me to bring along others Who don't know you. Pray for anyone here who doesn't, Lord. I pray that you'd be convicting them even now and drawing them to yourself in this moment as the fountain of living water. Praise you, Lord. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. We would rather be doorkeepers in your house than dwell in the tents of women. For your glory, Lord, and for our joy, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.